Today's passage comes from Jonah chapter 1, 17 through 2, 10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. And good morning, church family. It's good to see all of you this morning. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to guess where? The book of Jonah. It's a story that I anticipate many of you are familiar with. And yet, uh, reading this book is a lot like reading Hamlet or The Great Gatsby or Pride and Prejudice. This is a literary masterpiece written with a great deal of sophistication. And every time you turn the pages of this book, you'll find something new to appreciate. The author uses literary devices like chiasm and irony and merism and wordplay to communicate a message with a great deal of rhetorical power. Uh, one example of Jonah's sophistication can be seen in the outline of the book. There's this uh, beautiful pairing that takes place. The story neatly divides in half into two separate acts. We'll have an act one, that consists of chapters 1 and 2, and then there's the second act, which consists of chapters 3 and 4. And at the start of chapters 1 and 3, what we see is God commissions Jonah. And then what follows is Jonah has a conversation he, with, with a Gentile audience. In chapter 1, it's the sailors. In chapter 3, it's the Ninevites. And then what follows after both of those conversations, is Jonah has a dialogue with God. Now, the story begins with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. God speaks to him, and he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against us. Call out against it. Now, this uh, being a prophetic book, you would expect that the next sentence would inform us that Jonah rose and went to Nineveh, but we as readers are caught a bit off guard. The next verse begins by telling us that Jonah arose all right, leading us to conclude that, that, that Jonah is intending to obey, but we're told that he arose only to flee to Tarshish. So God says, Jonah, I want you to go east, and Jonah goes west. God says, I want you to go this way. Jonah says, I think I'll go that way. Now, before we climb up on our high horses and we shake our heads at Jonah and kind of pick him apart like a Monday morning quarterback, 
Let's just pause for a moment and think about this. Do you know anyone who's ever found obedience to God to be a challenge? Do you know anyone who's ever read God's word and found parts of it to be maybe hard or challenging or difficult? Do you know anyone, just maybe here, I'm, just, I'm, I'm going out on a limb, who, who, who read part of God's word and, and, and rather than choosing obedience, that person just ended up doing what felt right to them? Would you happen to know anyone like that? One of the great uh, Bible scholars in our congregation is a 89-year-old Dr. Ishmael Goko. He normally sits right over there. Oh, he's he's here for service. Uh, on Thursdays, uh, Dr. Goko plays tennis in the morning. By the way, last Thursday he won every game he played, and and then uh, and then afterwards he he uh, comes to the church for a noon Bible study, and sometimes he'll stop by early, and we'll have the chance to catch up and. When I mentioned a few weeks ago that I was going to be preaching on Jonah, he, he paused for a moment in reflection, and then rather profoundly he said, there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. I realize some of you might take exception to that. That's not like a really nice thing to say to, to someone. It's not really a compliment, but, you know, I didn't say it. It was Dr. Goko. Uh, but, you know, you know, after 89 trips around the sun, I think you learn a little bit about human nature. And uh, I, I think the another way we could phrase the question is, uh, have you ever turned a deaf ear to God? And, and I think I know the answer to that question. Uh, and, and I like what uh, this commentator, Richard Phillips, has to say when he writes this. How many versions of the Tarshish-bound ship there are to which Christians make appeal in their struggle with God's commands? How many versions of the Tarshish-bound ship there are to which Christians make appeal in their struggle with God's commands. In other words, there are commands directly from God to us that are revealed in his word. And these commands, they can, they can be challenging. They can go against the grain of our self-will. And rather than submit to the difficult calling of faithfulness, we too can board that ship to Tarshish. We, we look at God's word and we say things like, oh, you know, that, that, that part's just out of date. Or, um, you know, that, that's not as relevant for us today as it was for them back then. Or, you know, God really cares about obedience in, in this one area of my life, but faithfulness isn't as important in this area. And so what happens is rather than tell God, I'll do it your way, we say, uh, God, I'm just going to do it my way. Rather than self-denial, we can choose self-gratification, just like Jonah. And I want us to see how this turns out for Jonah, because there's a lesson in it for all of us. Now, Pastor Sonny pointed this out last week, but it bears repeating. So verse 3 tells us that Jonah went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now we're in uh, 1 verse 5, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. The end of chapter 1, he's tossed over into the ocean. And then Jonah says this in chapter 2 verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. 
All right, class. Question. What direction does Jonah's life head when he disobeys God? Did anybody pick up on it? Down. It's a downward spiral. And what scripture is teaching us is that's the trajectory our life takes when we pursue our own agenda. So if you're taking notes this morning, we could say that going rogue is a downward spiral. Every step away from God is a step closer to death. We're going to look again at chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. This is Jonah's assessment of his condition. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah did what he wanted. And he found himself in a situation that felt like a prison. He felt trapped. And this is the situation that disobedience will lead all of us. Now, none of us are likely to experience the exact same misfortune as Jonah, but chances are we'll experience many of the same emotions. So for some, that, that ship to Tarshish is an ungodly relationship. Maybe you got advice from some friends, some parents, a pastor. They, they, they encouraged you not to, to get your life entangled with this person, but it just it, it felt so good at first. And now... As a result of moving forward with that wrong person, that relationship is sowing pain and heartache in your life. Or maybe it's financial folly. You know what God's word says about living within your means and honoring him with the first fruits of your wealth. And instead of doing that, uh, you chose to live outside your means and not to honor God. And now the burden of debt feels a bit like a prison. Or maybe you can resonate with the lyrics of a Casting Crown song entitled American Dream. It's the story of a man who's allowed his career, a career can be a good thing, right? But he's allowed his career to become an ultimate thing. So he makes time for all the demands that are upon him at work, but he doesn't make time for God and the things of God. And uh, let, let me share the, the start of this song with you. It says, but he's moving on full steam. He's chasing the American dream. And he's going to give his family the finer things. Not this time, son. I've no time to waste. Maybe tomorrow we'll have time to play. And then he slips into his new BMW and drives farther and farther and further away. So he works all day and tries to sleep at night. He says things will get better, better in time. And he works and he builds with his own two hands. And he pours all he has in a castle made with sand. But the wind and the rain are coming, crashing in. Time will tell just how long his kingdom stands. His kingdom stands. His American dream is beginning to seem more and more like a nightmare with every passing day. What happens is when we plug our ears to the influence of God's word, what can start out feeling like, hey, I'm living the dream, eventually has a way of turning into a nightmare. The waters begin to close in. And maybe there's some areas of your life right now where you know you haven't completely surrendered things to God. You know you're still holding on to control. And maybe you're trying to justify it. Maybe you're trying to strike a deal with God. Say, okay, God, you know, here's the thing. I'm, I'm, I'm still going to go to church. I'll still read my Bible on occasion. I'll still listen to K-Love. 
I'll, I'll still give back to the community in some ways. But just let me do it my way when it comes to my finances or when it comes to my love life or when it comes to my entertainment choices or when it comes to my career. And, and it's possible that you're doing that and you don't really feel the bars yet. It doesn't feel like a prison. In fact, may, maybe your life doesn't feel messy at all. Maybe you're doing well at work. You've got a nice house. You've got some disposable income for trips and a couple vacations a year. But let me ask you this. At the end of the day, how much contentment is there in your life? There's this verse in Proverbs 10, 22. It says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. And I just wonder, that could, could it be that despite the, the weekend getaways and the meals out and all the recreational activities, that you're not fulfilled because there's a little bit of Jonah in you? There's some compromise going on when it comes to God's word. And the, the fulfillment you thought you'd have isn't there because God's trying to show you that, that your choices are hindering you from receiving his best, his blessing. Listen, if you're thinking about boarding the ship to Tarshish, let Jonah's life remind you that in the end, the fruit of rebellion is not freedom. It's a pit. And if you've already boarded the, the ship to Tarshish, if it's already set sail, Jonah's story offers us a lot of hope. When we make a mess of our life through our own folly, what we can learn from the account of Jonah is that there's hope. There's grace. And, and I want us to see first how God responds when Jonah makes a mess of things. So, so how does God respond to Jonah? Does God kind of sit back and say, all right, Jonah, you don't want to listen to me? You want to do it your way? That's fine. Hope things work out for you on the Iberian Peninsula. I don't, I, I'm never going to talk to you again. I'm done with you, Jonah. You, you figure God might have said something like that, right? Like, okay, Jonah. You don't want to be involved in my work? I got a whole Rolodex full of prophets. I'm just going to call up Nahum. I'm going to give this one to Amos. He could have done that, but he doesn't. Instead, God pursues Jonah. In fact, we could say that God relentlessly pursues Jonah. And the reason I say that is because in chapter 1, verse 6, it's the pagan ship captain of all people who tries to summon this man that's supposed to be a, you know, a man of God to pray. So the storm begins, and the ship captain comes to him, and he says, Arise and call out to your God. These, these words uh, are, are very similar to what we see in chapter or verse 2, where God tells Jonah to arise and call out against the great city. And you figure this might have been a bit of a wake-up call for the prophet, but Jonah doesn't pray at that point. And God doesn't say, you know what, you're out of here, Jonah. That's, that's it. You've exhausted my patience. Instead, what we see is that Jonah remains in the crosshairs of God's grace. In the midst of worrying about the entire nation, God takes time to deal individually with one solitary individual. He, he's the God who leaves the 99 to go searching for the one. I recently finished reading... Last Hope Island. Uh, the, the book shines light on some of the contributions of the lesser-known allied nations 
in the struggle to, to liberate the European continent from the grip of Nazi Germany. And one of the things that uh, I learned from the book was the contributions uh, of, of Poland during the course of World War II. I, I didn't realize this, but really it was um, the Polish fighter pilots that were instrumental in keeping the Germans at bay in the battle for Britain. Uh, the Polish were the ones that, uh, that cracked the Enigma code uh, that the Germans had that was so important in, in helping determine the outcome. They destroyed rail lines, uh, supply lines, other things that hindered uh, the movement of German troops. Uh, they had the best spy network on the continent. And in the late summer of 1944, with a little help from the Western Allies, uh, the Polish army would have most likely been able to liberate uh, Warsaw from, from German control. And the fate of that nation over the next 50 years would have looked remarkably different. However, when that Polish home army rose up to push out uh, their German occupiers, uh, President Roosevelt in particular was so focused on defeating Hitler that he gave little thought to Poland's post-war outcome. And what was happening in Warsaw was of, of secondary importance in his opinion. He, he, he thought that what was happening on the Western Front was, was most important, and as a result, he was not willing to divert any resources in that direction. What we see in this passage is that God is nothing like that. He's a God of unlimited resources, and every one of us are of primary importance to him. When God's mission to the Ninevites is jeopardized by Jonah's disobedience, God doesn't say, well, I need to keep my eye on the primary objective. I, I, I can't go getting sidetracked with this one rebellious guy. I'm, I'm, I'm worrying about a, a city that's got hundreds of thousands of people in it. I can't go chasing after this one wayward prophet. God does the exact, exact opposite. He says, well, now I'm going to need to initiate a second rescue mission. And, and so in the midst of dealing with the salvation of this entire city, God begins to orchestrate events with the ultimate aim of restoring one single individual. One of the themes in the book of Jonah is God's sovereign control over all that happens. So who sends the storm? Do you remember? Chapter 1, verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And when the, the pagan sailors are discerning enough to realize that hey, this isn't just your normal storm. This isn't an, a typical act of nature. This is the work of some divine power. And they decide to, to cast lots to see whose fault it is. Guess what? The lot falls to Jonah. How do you think that happened? God again. So you'll recall what happened. Jonah just said, hey, hurl me into the sea. It'll calm down for you. And, and, and we're told that the sailors dug in their oars even harder in hopes of reaching land. Uh, so this is rather ironic. Uh, Jonah has not shown a, a great deal of concern for, for the salvation of the Ninevites, and yet here we have these Gentile sailors who are showing concern for Jonah's life. They don't want to give up Jonah to the sea, but alas, the storm becomes so rough, they don't have any option. They throw him in. They follow Jonah's prescription. Now, now, enter into this with me. Pretend that you're hearing this for the very first time. I mean, suspense is sky high at this moment, isn't it? There's tension. Death by drowning seems inevitable. Jonah's life is hanging in the balance. 
This isn't like falling out of the boat at Lake Norman where you can see the shoreline. I mean, he's in the middle of the raging sea. There's no emergency personal locator beacon. There's no life raft. There's no Coast Guard cutter that's responding to a mayday call. This is just Jonah out there, and he is descending. And what happens? Well, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So how in the world is it that this great fish just happens to be at the right place at the right time? The Lord appointed it. Now watch this. As as we read on, we go to chapter 2 now. Here's what we discover. It's only when Jonah is at his lowest that he finally responds to God. Chapter 2 tells us, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You know, Jonah didn't think to pray about whether he should go to Nineveh in the first place. He didn't think to pray when the ship captain summoned him to pray. But now, when all his other options have closed down, guess what? Jonah turns to God in prayer. And sometimes the very best thing that can happen to us is the thing that seems the worst. The thing that we dread the most is sometimes the best thing that can happen. It's because when we reach rock bottom, it strips away our self-reliance and it just reveals to us the impotence of these things that we have the tendency to look to other than God. What we see is Even in his downward spiral, God didn't stop pursuing Jonah, and he doesn't stop pursuing us. What we could say is that God chases after us into our pit. That's the kind of God he is. And I just want to make a parenthetical comment here. Just because we we find ourselves in a situation that might feel hard or challenging, that doesn't mean it's the result of our own folly. On one occasion, Jesus' disciples, they asked him, they said, hey, hey, Jesus, who sinned? You know, this man or his parents that he was born blind? And you know what Jesus said? Neither. Sometimes life is hard. It's difficult. It's messy. And just because we live in a world that's fallen and broken, and we can trust in those situations, just like we see in the book of Jonah, that God is sovereign over all the, all, all the circumstances, And he's going to work all things together for the good of those who love him. But on some occasions, our messy circumstances are the result of our own folly. And if that's the reason for your pit, realize that God has brought you to this place in order to restore you. He's been pursuing you the whole time in hopes of getting your attention. This is what Hebrews 12, 6 says. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And eventually Jonah recognizes this. He came to understand that when he ran, God's response was to come after him. When he fled, God's grace pursued him. And when he realizes this, what does Jonah do? He doesn't do anything special. All he does is cry out. Look at Jonah chapter 2, verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard 
my voice. This is his testimony. And, and I want us to note two characteristics of Jonah's prayer that follows. We see that Jonah cries out in humility and in helplessness. And these are characteristics that should be true of our prayer life and our walk with the Lord. We should call out in humility and helplessness. First, humility. Look with me at what Jonah says next in verse 3. He's talking to God and he says, For you, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. You know, it was, it was the, the sailors that physically tossed him over the rails into the sea. But Jonah acknowledges God's sovereign hand and everything that's happened to him. And at the same time, he recognizes that it was caused by his own disobedience. He recognizes that it's his fault. There's this sense of penance and repentance in his voice. Jonah, initially, he chose self-will over God's will, and that's idolatry. And I want you to see what Jonah says about idolatry in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. He's thinking, man, I chose wrong here. I could have had steadfast love. He is a humbled man. He, he doesn't try to explain away the results of his disobedience. He doesn't blame the sailors or bad luck. Not that we would ever do anything like this, but he doesn't argue with God. He doesn't come and rattle off like five reasons like, hey, God, here's why it was wrong for you to ask me to go to Nineveh. He, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't try and rationalize with God. God, I think you overreacted here. It really wasn't that bad for me to sail to Tarshish. I mean, it's not like I, I violated any of the big ones. I didn't murder. I didn't, I didn't steal. I, I didn't lie. Aren't you going a little overboard? You know, sometimes people do this. <laughs> when they find themselves in dire straits, when they realize they made a mess of their lives, they make excuses or they start the blame game. It's everyone's fault but their own. And eventually, they even begin to blame God. They get angry at God. They say, you know, God, you just aren't being very fair. God, you just aren't being just. But Jonah doesn't do that. We see humility here. He simply lowers his head, and rather than turning on God, he turns on himself. He turns on his own sin. And not only does he cry out in humility, we also see helplessness in this prayer. You can sense the desperation in his voice, can't you? The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. There is not a hint of self-reliance left in this man's bones. Jonah isn't thinking, you know, it's starting to get a little rougher than I imagined, but if I just plow through, you know, I can turn things around. It's going to get better. There's none of that, is there? He recognizes that his predicament is beyond his capacity. He, he acknowledges his own inability to take any action that would lead to the preservation of his life. You know what Scripture says? God opposes the proud but gives his grace to who? The humble. You know what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed 
are the poor in spirit. Oswald Chambers says this is the first principle in the kingdom of God. The underlying foundation of Jesus' kingdom is poverty. It's having such a sense of absolute helplessness that we finally admit, Lord, unless you do it for me, I don't stand a chance. It's this kind of desperation that's the doorway into God's kingdom. And that's the desperation we see in Jonah's prayer. Now, there's a hymn I recall singing in church growing up. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. It's called Love Lifted Me. Anybody growing up? All right. It's great. As I was reading Jonah chapter 2 this week, I couldn't help but think about the lyrics to that hymn. See if you can make the connection here. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea, heard my despairing cry, from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Here's how you can know if you're truly a Christian. Can you identify with Jonah's prayer in the lyrics to that hymn? Have you come to a place where you've cried out to God in absolute dependence upon him, in desperation? Has he heard your despairing cry? Have you said, God, only you can help me. I recognize that I'm being driven from your sight and I'm sinking to rise no more and I need you to step in. And here's what I tell you. If you have cried out to the master of the sea with that same kind of desperation, he has heard your cry the same way he heard Jonas. See, what we see at the end of this chapter is God grants salvation. Verse 9, Jonah's in the middle of, the, of the, the belly of a fish in the midst of the ocean. And what do we find him doing? He's giving thanks. He's, he's worshiping. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. This reminds us of the end of chapter 1. This is exactly what the sailors did when they had their encounter with God and they came to fear him. Now Jonah's worshiping too. And he makes this great statement that's sort of a theme verse for the whole book. Salvation belongs to the Lord. When Jonah cried out to God, he experienced the grace of God. Before Jonah is even ejected from the mouth of the fish, he knows that God has forgiven him and he's been restored to his creator. Here's the sign that we know that we have been restored to God. When we're, wherever we're at in our trials, we can celebrate the fact that we've received God's grace, that, that's when we know that restoration has recurred. I know some of you here have been walking with the Lord for many, many years, and you've heard this chapter two, you've read this part of God's word before, and just as a way of application, here, here, here's what I'd ask you to consider. What's your heart posture before God? I mean, is, is Jonah a man, you read this and you kind of look at it and you kind of shake your head and you say, oh man, that guy was so dumb. Or do you, do you see a little bit of yourself in Jonah's story? Does it cause you to recall your own helpless estate and recognize that you were adrift spiritually in the heart of the sea 
and, and that you had no hope of rescuing yourself? And does it remind you when you see of how God intervened in Jonah's life, of how God rescued you, of how God's delivered you? And, 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 and right now, as a result of reflecting on this, are you at a place where you're kind of like Jonah at the end of chapter 2 when you're ready to worship, you're ready to celebrate, you're ready to give thanks? I think that's the heart posture that we should have as a result of spending some time in chapter 2 for those of us who have been with the Lord. And if you're here and you'd say, well, I'm not really sure if I can say that my relationship with my Creator has been restored. Well, what we see is that uh, Jonah's temporary quarters inside the belly of the fish really provided the right environment for reflection, for perspective, for him to get right with God. And today I know that the, the same Spirit of God that was at work in Jonah's life is at work through the proclamation of, the, of his word. And, and so... What I would say to you is, all Jonah did, all he did was he cried out to God in humility and helplessness, and he received salvation. There's nothing you have to do. You don't have to go, and you don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove it. You just have to come impoverished, helpless, humble, and God would want to dispense his grace to you. And I would want to give you an opportunity now to receive his loving kindness, to say, I want to, I want to say no to the vain idols that really don't offer any hope. And I want to cling to God's steadfast love instead. And so I'm just going to invite us all to bow our head and to close our eyes. And Father, as we come before you, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving this account so that we could learn a little bit more about your heart, about your grace, and be reminded of not just how you dealt with Jonah, but how you deal with each one of us and our folly and our rebellion and our tendency to plug our ears to your word. And we thank you that you're gracious. Lord, I pray right now for the person who has not yet uttered the despairing cry that's necessary to receive your grace. And if that's you, I want to give you the opportunity to experience what Jonah experienced. And you can just say a prayer like this. God, I cry out to you. I cry out to you in my distress, knowing that I'm separated from your sight. And I thank you that you are a God of steadfast love. And I know that you demonstrated that steadfast love in sending your son, Jesus, to be my Savior. And Jesus, I would ask that you would forgive me of my sins as I make you now my Lord and Savior. Thank you for restoring me. Thank you for giving me a hope. And thank you for making it possible for me to spend eternity with you in heaven. We give you great thanks. And all God's people said,
Amen.